0: Revelation chapter 4, as you find your place today, I want to begin by telling you about Pastor Tim LaHaye. He was flying home from a speaking engagement when God placed a burden on his heart. His study of the Bible had left him with a firm conviction that one day in the future, all believing Christians would suddenly and miraculously be removed from the world And an event called the rapture. As he flew home that day on the plane, he couldn't help but notice that one of the pilots was flirting with a flight attendant. He noticed that the pilot was wearing a wedding ring. And he thought to himself, what if this were the moment, as they were flying 30,000 feet above the surface of the earth, if this were the moment that God chose to call His church home, leaving behind only their clothes of the believers and a mass of bewildered crowds. And so he was inspired at that moment to write a fictional account of what might happen one minute after the rapture. And thus, he said, the idea for the Left Behind series was born. If you've read those books or if you've been into a Christian bookstore in the past decade, you know that those went on to be some of the best-selling Christian books in history. To date, they've sold over 65 million copies around the world. But in his book entitled The Rapture, Dr. LaHaye vividly imagined the day of the rapture like this. He said, quote, When Christ calls His living saints to be with Him, Millions of people will suddenly vanish from the earth. When half a billion people disappear, leaving behind their earthly belongings, pandemonium and confusion will certainly reign for a time. A million conversations will suddenly end mid-sentence. A million vehicles will be unmanned. A woman will reach for a man's hand in the dark and no one will be there. A man will turn to laugh, and slap his colleague on the back, but his hand will move through empty air. A basketball player will make a pass to a teammate streaking down court and find there is no one there to receive it. A mother will pull back the covers in a bassinet, smelling the sweet baby smell one moment, but will be shocked to see only empty blankets. Now, it is only natural for you and I to try and imagine The chaos and the confusion that would erupt on earth after the believing remnant of the church is taken out. But the other side of the coin is for us to try and picture in our minds the spectacular things that the redeemed of the Lord will see and hear and experience as they defy gravity and as we go up, up and away to meet Christ in the air and forever be with Him. Well, fortunately, we don't have to do a whole lot of guessing because the God of our salvation gives us an amazing account of what the church can expect one minute after the rapture when they arrive in heaven's gates. Here in Revelation chapter 4, we have a sneak peek behind heaven's curtain. We have a picture into the very throne room of God. Now, if you have ever wondered what will heaven be like This chapter, I would submit to you, is a prophetic preview. A glimpse into glory. You'll discover as we study that Revelation 4 is one of the most exciting and hopeful chapters in the Bible because as we study it, we're going to be reminded that none of earth's strife or turmoil or confusion will diminish the joy and worship in heaven. C.S. Lewis said it like this, He said, hell does not have veto power over heaven. And then he remarked that sorrow looks back, worry looks around, but hope looks forward, and God's people have a lot to look forward to. So as we open up Revelation 4 today, I want you to notice, number one, the church's escape from earth. Read with me very quickly verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, this chapter begins with a new vision in which John travels upward in space Space and forward in time. Now, as you study this passage, you say, Well, where's the word rapture? The passage doesn't mention the rapture explicitly, but I think we can definitely make a case that it is alluded to in several different ways. Most notably is the first observation that at the end of chapter 2 and 3, the church is on the earth. But when we come to chapter 4, as we keep reading, you will discover that now the church is in heaven. Well, how did they get there? They got there by way of the rapture. Now, if you are looking for that word rapture in the Bible, you'll be disappointed because you won't find it. In fact, that word rapture is actually a Latin translation of the Greek word that the New Testament writers use. In the Greek, the actual word is harpazo. And it means to be forcibly snatched up, to be caught away, to be taken up by force. As we open this chapter, verse 1, notice that John says, And I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, in this text, the open door is the call for the church to come and be welcomed into God's presence. Now, if you study the book of Revelation, you'll notice that twice in this book, uh, there is an open door. The first occasion is here. The second time you see an open door in heaven is at the latter end of the book in chapter 19, verse 11. The first time the door is open, the church goes up. The next time... The door is open in heaven. The church comes down to earth. And really, this differentiates between the return of Christ and the rapture of the church. You see, at the rapture, Christ appears in the heavens for His church. But at the return, Christ comes down to earth with His church. And so, you notice the difference. Look at this chart. At the rapture, Christ comes in the air. At the return, Christ comes to the earth. At the rapture, Christ comes for the church. At His return, He comes with the church. The rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament. But the return of Christ is predicted frequently throughout the prophets. The rapture is not preceded by any signs. But the return of Christ is preceded by many different signs. The rapture commences or begins the tribulation period. The return concludes the tribulation. The rapture is a private event The return is a public event. Every eye will see Him when He comes on the clouds of glory. Now, as you study this, there are two attributes about the rapture that we can make. First, I want you to notice what I have called the timing of the rapture. Notice the text says, I will show you what must take place after this. Now, earlier on in our study, when we were in chapter 1, We went to verse 19, and there in chapter 1, verse 19, we are given an outline of the book of Revelation. He's told there, write the things which you have seen, that's past. Then he's told to write the things which are, that's present. And the things which will take place after this, that's future. So right there at the beginning of the book, John gives us an outline. The first section, past, was John's glorified vision of Christ, chapter 1. The second section, the present, was the seven letters that Jesus addressed to the churches of Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. And now we begin the third section of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way through the rest of the book, we have the future, that which must take place after this. It's interesting also to note that the word church is conspicuously absent from this third section. In fact, if you do a study, you'll notice that the word church is used 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation. And as well it should. Jesus is addressing the church of the first century and the churches of all time. But when you come to the future section, chapters 4 through the rest of chapter 19, which details the tribulation period, you know how many times the church is mentioned? Zero. You know why? Because the church isn't on the earth. The church is in heaven. Praise God, friend. That means that the church is taken out of the world before all hell breaks loose down here. So we see the timing of the rapture, but then I also want you to notice the trumpet of the rapture. Notice what he says also, verse 1. I looked up, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a, say it, church, trumpet, Now, the rapture is described in detail in a couple of other passages. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Those are two parallel passages that we ought to study in tandem with Revelation 4. Notice the parallels between these verses. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we read this. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, of God. So we see that one thing that Revelation 4 and 1 Thessalonians 4 have in common is there's a voice. Then we notice the sound of the trumpet. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The rapture will be heralded with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Also, 1 Corinthians 15.52 Notice what Paul says there. For the trumpet will sound And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, why does the Bible mention a trumpet? I like what Dr. John Walford, in his scholarly work on Revelation, he said, The last trumpet for the church may be analogous to the last trumpet used in the Roman army. Soldiers were awakened by a first trumpet blast early in the morning, which served as their alarm clock. He then said a second trumpet assembled them for instructions of the day. At last, the trumpet call that they heard marched them off to their assignments. Similarly, he said, receiving salvation is like hearing a trumpet call. We are awake from spiritual slumber. Then God's call to service is like hearing a second trumpet. And the last trumpet, believers will go to heaven to begin their assignments in Eternity. Reminds me of a story that I read one time happened during the Civil War. There was a Civil War chaplain that was serving with the Confederacy. And they were camping out in an open field. It was a very bitterly cold night. The weather changed. And they didn't have time to set up a camp. So the soldiers had to just lay out on the ground and sleep under the stars. Well, that night as the weather changed, the snow began to fall. And so imagine this Confederate army out in an open field and the snow falling. Well, the next day the Confederate chaplain woke up and he looked out on the battlefield there, the camp, and he saw all these snow-covered soldiers and he remarked that they looked like the mounds of fresh graves. He said, but then... The bugler woke up and sounded revel, and the men immediately rose up from their mounds, and he said it dramatically reminded the chaplain of the last trumpet of the resurrection, that same trumpet that Paul talks about and that John talks about here. And friend, at the last trumpet blast, the church age will be passed. Very soon, the believing will be leaving. And then we will defy gravity, we'll meet Jesus in the air, and somewhere in between your feet leaving the earth and you entering heaven, you'll receive a resurrection body. Like I said last week, that's enough to make a Methodist shout. I think about the return of Christ. You think about all the problems that we have in our world, all the problems that you have in your life. I think the return of Jesus is going to solve about every single problem that I've got in my life. When the trumpet sounds, when the cries given come up hither, can you think of one thing that will be left in your life to worry about? You can leave your house, you can leave your car, you can leave all the cares and the worries of the earth behind because, friend, we're going to be with Jesus forevermore. So we see, number one, yeah, give God praise today. We see, number one, the church's escape from earth. Now the passage is going to pick up very quickly. As we get into verse 2, we see the church's exaltation in heaven. Awesome doesn't even begin to describe this scene as we read it. And as we imagine what it is going to be like there in the presence, in the throne room of God. I challenge you to read this passage and not get goosebumps. Notice first thing that John sees is the sovereign on the throne. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John gives a description there of God the Father sitting on the throne in heaven. As he does that, he outlines three different divine attributes. Notice the fact that God is seated on the throne is a picture of His sovereignty. How many of you believe that God is in control today? Listen to me, church. There are no emergency council meetings in the triune God. He has all things under control. There are no maverick molecules in His universe because the Lord is sovereign, reigning and ruling, yes, even in the difficult times of your life. Then we see that the precious stones are described there. Jasper and Carnelian, you know what that speaks of? The glory of God. The sum of all of God's attributes, His love, His mercy, His grace, His justice, His compassion, His immutability, His eternality, all of those combined together are like a multifaceted gem. And just as you take a gem and you turn it in the light and you see the sparkle and you see the colors that are reflected, God's character is multifaceted and it's glorious and it's beautiful. And then we see that that rainbow encircles the throne. Do you know what that speaks of? The faithfulness of God. The rainbow is a reminder, going all the way back to Genesis 8 and 9, of Noah's flood, that God is not just a great promise maker, but God is a great promise keeper. Has He kept you this week? Has He been faithful to you? Have you gone hungry? Have you done without? Friend, I haven't because God is faithful. Every promise He ever made will be kept. Every prophecy uttered will be fulfilled. Every judgment that He has spoken will be carried out because He is a faithful God. The sovereign on the throne. But then notice the saints around the throne are you having a good time yet wait till you read verse 4 and around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads now the identity of these 24 elders has been a point of theological debate for years there are some who argue that these 24 elders represent Israel. But I think it is clear from the book of Revelation, the evidence given here, that these elders seated around the throne represent the church. One major clue is their apparel. Notice they are wearing white garments. And if you go back into one of the letters, the letter to the church at Sardis Jesus promised those faithful believers at Sardis that if they endured, that they would be clothed in white. The robes, by the way, are symbolic of Christ's righteousness. That we take off those filthy rags of sin. And Christ clothes us in His righteousness, His purity, His holiness, so that when we stand before God, we stand clothed in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Then we see that these elders are wearing crowns. Did you notice that? Now, the Greek in in the text for crown is actually the word Stephanos. It's known as the victor's crown. Now, in John's day, these crowns were awarded to athletes who won competitions, a wrestling match or a sprint or the shot put or discus throw. And once again, we see a connection with the church because if you go back to Revelation 2, when Jesus is writing the church at Smyrna, He says to those folks, look, if you endure the persecution and come through the end, I will reward you with a crown of Life. So when you put all these clues together, you begin to understand that this is a picture of the church worshiping around the throne of God. Now I should point out that those crowns, when are those given? They are given when the church goes before the Bema seat judgment of Christ. We notice here that the elders are already wearing those crowns. And it is very likely that that Bema Seat judgment will take place soon after the rapture. Now, this judgment is set aside just for the church. It's just for the redeemed. And the issue at hand will not be your entrance into heaven. That was already decided by Christ at the cross and the decision that you made to repent. But the issue at hand is the gain or loss of eternal reward. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5:10. He says, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for him, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." So at the Bea seat judgment, Christ is going to be looking at our service to him after the moment of salvation and through the rest of our Christian life. He's going to evaluate our works. He's going to look at our giving. He's going to look at our stewardship, our faithfulness, how we used our gifts and resources. He'll even examine the motive of our heart, why we did what we did. And according to the Bible, we'll be rewarded. We can win a crown based on that faithfulness, which we will use not to parade around of our own glory, but to cast at Jesus' feet in praise and worship. So we see... Not only the sovereign on the throne and the saints around the throne, but then I want you to notice the sights and the sounds from the throne. Here's what the text says, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. So notice the sights and the sounds coming from God's throne. The earthquakes and the lightnings are harbingers of a coming storm. In fact, the same wonders are going to emanate from God's throne later on in the book as He unleashes His judgment in successive waves on the earth. We'll read it again in chapter 8, verse 5. We'll see it again in chapter 11 and verse 19. and chapter 16, verse 18, we'll see earthquakes and lightnings. And here we see another attribute of God manifested. One that we don't like to hear about. One that a lot of preachers are scared to talk about, and that is God's wrath. Do you know that God is a God of wrath? The God who offers abundant grace, abundant mercy... To sinners is the same God who holds in His hand the gavel to judge an unbelieving world, a wicked world, an unrepentant world that clenches its fist at God. Now, notice what it says in verse five. It says there that the fullness of the Spirit of God will be there before the throne. We're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits. Of God. Now, where does that come from? Well, the Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits of God. That's a reference that you have to dig up from the book of Isaiah. In chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah, a description is given of the sevenfold attributes of the Holy Spirit. He said to be deity, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and reverence. And that is what John is referring to, that passage Isaiah eleven two. 2. But as I think about this worship service taking place in heaven, friend, you won't have to work very hard. You won't be embarrassed to raise your hands in praise to Christ when you are in this kind of glorious environment. It will be a worship service that will be out of this world. Think of it. The Holy Spirit will have total freedom to move. The church will be in sinless resurrection bodies. The angels will be singing songs that we have never heard before. And we might even invent some songs too as the church praises God. We will have all of our focus on the One seated upon the throne and the Lamb of God who takes the title deed of the earth. Oh, church, are you looking forward to this the sights and sounds from the throne. Friend, I'm grateful today that I've got a reason to shout. I've got a reason to praise. Because those in the world, those that are lost in sin, those that are just living for today, they have no clue what the church is looking forward to, what they're missing out on, what is coming down the pipe as the day will arrive when we will finally gaze upon him whom we have always loved but never seen that in which we have sung about and read about we'll see him face to face and we'll join together with the angelic choirs in praising the Lamb of God who was and is and is to come the risen one who holds in his hand the keys of death and Hades I'm talking about the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, but is alive forevermore. That's the God I'm talking about. Church, you've got a reason to shout today. A reason to sing. And it's only going to get better because God has saved the best for last. Notice this. The supernatural creatures around the throne. Notice verse 6. Bible says, And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Who are these four living creatures? Well, they are reminiscent of the cherubim and the seraphim that Isaiah encountered and that Ezekiel encountered. Like those creatures in Isaiah 6, we see that these four living creatures have six wings. Like the angelic creatures that Ezekiel sees in the first chapter of his book, these also have four different heads. And as we will see, these heavenly creatures are actually a special class of creature that God is going to dispatch later in Revelation 6 to carry out His judgment on the earth. Now, when God begins to release His wrath, these four living creatures are going to be the agents of that judgment. But here, in this moment, they are standing at God's throne waiting for the command to be given to release the four horsemen. Now, there's a special significance to their faces or their heads. Don't miss this. Each one of those animalistic features are symbolic of a different aspect of Christ's personality as revealed in the Gospels. How many Gospels are there? Four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each one of those authors has a specific theme and purpose for writing. In Matthew, when he drew his portrait of the Lord, he did so of the King of the Jews. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, thus the Lion. When Mark drew his portrait of Christ, he did so as the suffering servant. Thus, the picture of the ox, a humble beast of burden. When Luke pictured Jesus, he does so as the Son of Man, taking the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, thus the face of the man. And then lastly, John displays Jesus as the Son of God, which can be seen in the eagle, because Christ is the one who descended from on high and who rules from heaven. And what is amazing about this church as I study it is that God has created supernatural angelic creatures that we have yet to see. Don't you let the world lull you into believing that heaven is going to be boring. How in the world could heaven be boring? We're the ones that are boring. Heaven cannot be boring because we're going to get to associate with heavenly creatures that we have yet even the classification to understand. So we see the supernatural creatures around the throne. Then we see lastly the singing before the throne. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that's you and me, that's the church, fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, imagine yourself saying this, To Jesus. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Think about this. While there is tribulation and chaos on earth, there's a celebration. There's a party going on in heaven. Oh, if you could only get an earshot of the praise and worship that's taking place in heaven. Friend, it would send hairs standing up on the back of your neck. Notice the church's theme here is a praise chorus of God through creation. The church is acknowledging God's right because He's the Creator, because He made it all, and because His Son gave it all, that now He has the authority and the prerogative to offer righteous judgment. He's going to redeem the creation that was lost. Notice this chart. When God created the universe in six days, He finished and He called all His creation good. But then man plunged the earth into the ruin of sin and it became a groaning creation according to Romans 8.22. But because of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, and through what is going to happen in the book of Revelation, eventually it will be restored to a glorified earth. So paradise lost will become paradise regained. And the church is announcing this before the throne of God. That what we anticipate is going to happen. And the climax of this worship service, did you read it? It says there, they cast their crowns before the throne oh friend this will be one of the most awesome experiences of your existence and mine one of the most awesome things that you can imagine to be awarded that crown that you don't deserve and you certainly didn't earn and then in the chorus in the swell of praise and glory with the sounds and the sights being able to bow at the feet and at the throne of the Savior and cast that crown before Him and say, no, no, Lord, it's all about You. It always has been and it always will be about You, Jesus. Friend, I don't know about You, but when I get there, I don't want to be empty-handed. I want to have something to cast at the feet of Jesus because He's worthy and I'm so unworthy. Makes me think of the old song. Now I'm a child with a heavenly home. My Holy Father has made me His own. And I'm washed in the blood. And I'm clothed in His love. And someday I'll sing with the angels above. Yes, oh yes, I'm a child of the King. His royal blood now flows in my veins. I who was wretched and poor can now sing, Yes, oh yes, I'm a child of the King. Friend, do you understand what God has reserved for those who love Him? Oh man, we have so much to look forward to. When I think about this passage, my heart says, Oh, God, help me to live in such a way that I bring honor and glory to Your name so that I have something to cast at Your feet as an expression of worship and adoration. Let me finish with this. As I thought about casting that crown, in John's day... Athletes won crowns. Those who won a race won a crown. Today, they get medals. But in Revelation 3.11, we read this. Jesus tells the church at Philadelphia, He says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Listen to this. Going into the 2012 London Olympics, one of the favored sprinters of the U.S. team was this athlete, Tyson Gay. His 100-meter personal best of 9.69 seconds is still the American record. Makes him tied for the second fastest man ever. He got injured in 2008. He went home without a medal. So he was looking for redemption in 2012. That year, Tyson Gay anchored the U.S. men's 4x100 relay team. And after a nail-biting finish that came right down to the wire, the U.S. took home a silver medal in that event. But soon after that, the news broke. Tyson's victory and America's victory was eclipsed by defeat. You see, he failed testing for drugs. He tested positive for steroid use. And it was discovered that he had cheated. He broke the Olympic rules. And as a result, they stripped him of his medal, he and his other teammates, and he was banned from ever competing in the Olympics again. And I finish with that story to say this, friend. Listen, it matters how you and I run the race. It matters. Because one day the rewards are going to be given out. And Christ will look at how we ran our race. And there's a crown to gain and a crown to lose. How tragic it would be, friends, for us to be stripped of those rewards that Christ would want to give to us. So, friend, run the race well. Run the race with courage, with hope, with perseverance, knowing that when you cross the finish line, That's what's waiting for the church. So we ought to live as if Jesus died yesterday, was raised this morning, and coming back tomorrow.